Thank you for listening to our Truth in Life podcast. This season, we will survey the Bible's unfolding story of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, every book points to Christ and edifies His church. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. All right, Joshua, we are in the last week of this module. So we've come through the Pentateuch. This is the first book in a new section. Um, A logical break for you guys to move on to the next module would have been right now, but they divided into six weeks. So I get to lead us through Joshua as well. Joshua is a book of history. It's the first of 12, I think 12 books of history, all the way Joshua through Job. Yeah, through Job. So those are categorized as history. Um, You'll cover this in future modules, but this one does chronologically follow right on the heels of Deuteronomy. From this point forward, that's not necessarily the case. A lot of times it is, sometimes it isn't. So we have a real change here. So far, every book we've, we've studied has been written by Moses. It's the Pentateuch. It's what the Jewish people call the law. Um, so big, big change here. I'm looking forward to it. So Joshua, other than Adam, we believe Joshua is the only man in Scripture to be born without a father. Right? It's the son of none. <laughs> All right. Groan, that was pretty bad. My mom told me that groan was pretty bad. I believed it for a long time. <laughs> I used to. <laughs> I'm more upset I fell for it. When I was in college, roughly that age, and. Um, really started studying the Bible, a a group of friends and I would play a trivia game called Bible Baffle all the time. It was a really hard game. These were, this is not a kid's trivia game. I mean, it is, but it was hard. (laughs) It was pretty wild. (laughs) Uh, At my bachelor party, we played Risk all night, so yeah. But this Bible Baffle game was fun. Our special guest, Erica Simpson, who just walked out the door. I played with her husband, Kevin, and a few other friends. And it was a great way for these young guys, myself included, to show off and, you know, show how smart we were to our friends. And hopefully our wives were overhearing from the other room how smart we we were. And that question, they somehow, it was a trick question in there about Joshua being the son of none. Anyway, that's not my main purpose for today. Uh, as I said, this book is a turning point. It's the, it marks the end of Israel's trials and wanderings in the wilderness. It marks the beginning of their new life as a settled community in their own land. This is the conquest of that land. We do believe most of it was written by Joshua, but we know that he can't have written all of it because it covers his death and it covers several events that happen after his death. His death, the death of Eleazar, and a couple more stories are there at the end of the book. So we know in its present form it wasn't totally written by Joshua. Uh, Jewish tradition maintains that Eleazar added the account of Joshua's death and that Phinehas added the account of Eleazar's death. 
So in that understanding, Joshua did write the vast majority of it. Others believe that the final composition and really the compilation of everything was significantly later, made by an editor or compiler, whatever you want to call it, um, no doubt drawing from things that Joshua had written down and oral tradition that started with Joshua. This, this theory says that somebody else came, I don't know how much later, but significantly later. The, the main reason I think that folks believe that is because of the frequent use of the word or the phrase to this day. In Joshua, you'll read to this day. So, you know, this is going on to this day, um, which does seem to imply a, a number of years passing there. In any event, we don't know. Um, I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but um, it doesn't matter a lot to me. It's, it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The church has always universally agreed that this is inspired by God. All right. The book spans a period of about 24 years, okay, beginning with the death of Moses. We covered that last week on Mount Nebo. Remember the maps, I hope, from last week. So the book spans a period of 24 years from that point until the settlement of Israel into its tribal districts. So roughly, this covers, now this is, I'm going to give you very specific dates. We don't know this for sure, but we know that it's 24 years. And historians estimate that it covers a period from 1404 BC until 1380 BC. Could be off a little bit, but I don't think it's off by much. So that gives us a really good, pretty clear picture of when this was taking place. This book is largely a narrative story of the military campaigns of Joshua. And at the end of the book, you basically have Egypt, which was by far the largest power on earth at that time. They covered a, you know, they owned, controlled, dominated a large area. So at the end of the book, you have Egypt on their southwest, and you have Babylon, another great and growing power, on her east. Okay? Spoiler alert, as you get into the other modules, Babylon plays a huge role in Israel's history. So at the end of this book, that's where they are. They've, they've dominated, they've taken over, they've conquered the land of Canaan, but they have a superpower to the southwest, and they have a growing power off to the east, northeast area. Joshua, I will also say, this is all introductory material, Joshua is an aggressive book. It can be difficult to accept some of the things that take place in Joshua. I'll, I will tell you, I struggle more with Joshua than any other book in the Bible. Well, Judges is rough too. Um, but Joshua is very aggressive. There's a lot of killing. And these are things that God explicitly commanded too. I think that's what makes it hard for me to wrap my head around. It's not, you know, we know that... Um, men in the Old Testament in particular, kings, leaders, would fall into sin with women, multiple women, lots of wives, Solomon being the most notorious example. So we struggle with those passages as conservative Christians, right? We struggle and we say, yeah, but that wasn't God's plan. 
they were off the reservation there. That's not what God wanted. Um, that may or may not be a complete answer. That's not the point I'm making here. The point I'm making here is that these things in Joshua are explicitly commanded by God. And they're hard to, they can be hard to read unless you're detached and you're not thinking about women and children and, and what's going on. So we'll talk about that a little bit, but I just wanted to get that out there. This is a difficult book in that, in that area. Uh, some people have drawn parallels between Joshua and Acts, Acts of the Apostles in the, in the New Testament. Uh, Joshua follows the Pentateuch, so five books of Moses. Acts follows the four Gospels. They both, they both follow a series of books that are full of promise and leading up to conquering, right? The Pentateuch leads up to Joshua. Joshua is conquering. The Gospels tell the story of Jesus and his life on earth and is full of all the wonderful truths that Jesus taught, similar to the wonderful truths of the law that Moses brought to the people. And so um, people draw parallels between those two because they both demonstrate victory, domination, very different ways, of course. Um, so take that for you know, assign how much weight you think that gets. I think it is significant. They're both books of dominion over sin, too, Acts and, and Joshua. Physical judgment, spiritual victory, they both show the power of God to defeat sin and so forth. Okay, back to this being a, a difficult book with all of the conquering and killing. I think the way to understand this is that these Canaanites were wicked people. Their behavior was bad even at the time of Abraham, okay? Go back 400 years ago for us, four weeks. 400 years ago at the time of Abraham, God predicted that it would grow worse. Remember, he, he took Abram out of his land. Abram stopped in Canaan. God made promises there. And God pointed out the people nearby and said, these are wicked people. And he said, it's going to get worse. It will grow worse and worse for 400 years. And then he told Abram that he would, at that point, move in judgment against them when their iniquity was complete. So as bad as they were in the time of Abraham, and God's explicit about that, he said their t the time of their iniquity is not complete. But when it's complete, I will judge them. And that was all wrapped up in the promise to to Abraham, right? So during the more than four centuries in between then and what we're studying today, their wickedness did grow and reach that point where the time for God's judgment had arrived. I'll also note that at the end of this book, some of the enemies remained in the land. Not, every, not everyone was defeated at the end of this book. Some of the cities within the boundaries um, spelled out and given by God and given to Abram, Abraham. Um, some of the enemies in that region were not annihilated, were not cast out, were, were not, God's people were not victorious over them. Some of those cities um, weren't taken until the days of King David. Uh, this was partly due to the failure of Israelites to fully obey God, but it was also God's plan. You may remember, we didn't dwell on it back then, but God 
said, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. Now, that little by little, I think, is largely over the span of when Joshua was written. You know, it wasn't in one year. It took years for them to, for this conquest to happen. But it didn't fully, completely happen until the time of King David. That uh, passage that I referenced, by the way, is from Exodus chapter 23. Okay, all right, that's all introductory material. Um, thoughts or questions about that before we dive in? Okay, part one, I'm on, I'm on the content section of your outline now, of your handout. Part one, entry into the promised land. The book begins with God speaking to Joshua, telling him to lead the people into the promised land. And God says, this is a great promise, God says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. What great encouragement right on the verge of something so huge after being under jo um, Moses' leadership for so many years, growing up under that. Now Joshua is still a somewhat young, eh, it's not super young, but he's not old. After all those years under Moses, God tells him, I'm going to be with you in the same way I was with Moses. So Joshua immediately begins to make preparations to do what God was at that point calling him to do. Jericho is going to be their first stop, and Jericho is two hours west of the Jordan River. You remember from the previous maps that they've circled up to the east, they've settled down in the land of Moab, they've defeated people, um, kings in that area, they're still surrounded by a lot of other people up there in Moab to the northeast. And now they're, they're close to the Jordan. They're going to cross the Jordan moving west, right? So Jericho is two hours west of that point. Joshua sent... By walking? By walking, yeah. So not very far. Joshua sends two spies, sounds familiar, right? Into Jericho to scope it out. The spies enter, they stay over the, overnight at the house of Rahab, a prostitute. She lived basically, I'd call it, in, in an apartment built into or maybe on top of the wall around the city. So Rahab lived there. The spies come in. I think they, the people know that there are spies, and so the spies are fear for their lives, and so Rahab hides them. The Israelites knew that there were walled cities and that this would be intimidating. Um, and so I think it's strategic. They stayed with someone who lived there, easier to escape, made sense to stay there. Um, if they had been discovered, they had the best chance of getting out of there. In God's providence, though, he, he placed them in a home with a woman who showed herself to be a true friend to the people of God. So she informs the spies even. She, she doesn't only protect them, but she tells them, yeah, the people here are afraid of you because word has spread. We know that your God is the true God. That's more or less what she says. 
and gives them that inside information. So they're spying, they're scoping it out. What are we going to do strategically? They don't have the plan yet from, from the Lord about circling the city. We'll come to that in a minute. They don't have that yet. So these spies, they're thinking strategically. They're, they're doing the things that spies would do. So Rahab protects them, hides them. Um, in exchange for that, the two spies promise to keep her and her household safe during the attack, as long as she hangs a scarlet cord from her window. So the spies escape to the mountains. Again, they're, they're being pursued. I don't know how close the, the Jericho people got to them, but they're, they're afraid. They have reason to be afraid. They escape to the mountains, hide for three days until the pursuers return to Jericho. And then it's safe. They head back east across the Jordan and rejoin the rest of the camp of Israel. So Joshua receives a report, moves the army to the banks of the Jordan, and they spend three days in preparation and prayer, and then it's time to move. So the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant in front. Okay, remember how Moses parted water with his rod, right? With his with his staff. This is different. Okay, it's similar miracle. God is going to part the water of the Jordan River, but this time the appointed symbol of the presence of God is the Ark of the Covenant. So as soon as the feet of the priests carrying the Ark touch the water, the water parts and gives them a path to cross over on dry land. They set up stones, they do memorial stuff at that point, um, and they're thankful to God. They praise Him, they worship Him. By the way, here too, Joshua instructs that the sign of the covenant, circumcision, is to be given to all the people, all the men at that, at that point. In the wilderness, there was no sign of the covenant given, maybe because they were under the judgment of God, and so it was inappropriate to receive the sign. I don't, I don't think we know for sure. Um, but they weren't receiving the sign all those years in the wilderness. So they're, now they're, they're, they're technically in the promised land. They've crossed the river. They're there. And Joshua says, it's time to receive the sign. So he gives the sign. They rest for a few days. They celebrate Passover and the supply of manna. Remember the manna. All this time, they've been fed by manna. Once they're over, the manna stops. Okay, they're in a land flowing with milk and honey. There's food. They're not in the wilderness. So they don't need the manna. And the manna, the miraculous supply of manna stops. That's part one, entry, okay? Next section is conquest. Here's another map. I've got to have a map every week. Okay, this, I should switch to a blue pen. That would be fancy, right? Okay, here's the, the Jordan River. Okay, goes down. That's the Jordan River. It doesn't show up great on this map. I like to use the present day Google Maps. I just think it's interesting to see what it's like now. Um, I'm probably spending too much time here, but note the this is the traditional baptismal site of Jesus. And I think we have reason to see that as, as pretty accurate. This is where, one second, Sam. Um, this is where they are, okay? And this is Jericho. So they, 
we're pretty sure they crossed right at that spot where Jesus was baptized. Yeah, guys in the back. Um, would this, does this look a whole lot different than what it was when they crossed it? Like, geographically, would it have been more green? I don't know for sure. I'm not sure. I know water is a big deal, and this river in particular is a very big deal to Israel and has been for centuries at this point. In this river, at this point, some of us have been there to the Jordan River at this very point. It is not a large river today. I don't think that expressway was there. Nope. <laughs> no, none of these roads. Um, but yeah, it's small today. They, they believe that it was significantly larger before, that this is not a raging river. I don't know. I've, I've read quite a bit about this, and from what I gather, the, at this point of the Jordan, at that time, people seem to think that it would have been like the Maumee River in Waterville, not the Maumee River in downtown Toledo. This is, there's a lot of speculation in what I'm saying here. But today, it's much smaller than that. Okay, we are very, very confident that we know where Jericho was. Right now, this whole area is Jericho. And again, I've been there. Some of us have been there. I had a really good lunch in Jericho. This, this is not controlled by the Israelis today. This is the West Bank. This is firmly in the West Bank. So this is under Palestinian control, but they're friendly. They want the tourists and and everything. So we had a nice lunch there and enjoyed going into Jericho. And those of us on the trip, we got to go into this area. Let's switch back to red. This area here, which is ancient Jericho. If you can read here, it says Tell Jericho. A tell is a raised area. Um, it's basically a city built on an ancient city. And so where, whenever there's a tell, a, a hill with a flat part on the top, then they begin, now they're excavating all of those tells and doing archaeology there. So we know for sure that this is ancient Jericho. So the people are here, they cross the river, and that's where they're headed. I looked, I looked it up, a two-hour walk would be like going from Ottawa Hills to downtown Toledo. very close. Yeah, this is, yeah, this whole area is, it's not large. All right, the angel of the Lord appears to Joshua at this point to encourage him. The, the people are to take the city with the aid of a miracle. They're to march the army in silence around the city, around Jericho. Remember, this is a walled city, which was a huge deal at that point. Most of the, there's a map I'll show you in a minute where it's zoomed out and shows this whole area. But the communities, the cities, the villages here are smaller than Jericho. Jericho is a fortified city. And that was a very big deal. Yeah, Leanne? Um, what you, you said well, this is the military campaign of Joshua. Did the, the, the families all hang back until it was all conquered and then they went back and got them? Or are they going along with everybody and the herds and everybody? I think that um, a lot of people are hanging back and they have people, remember the census at the end at the end of the wilderness revealed how many men there were of fighting age. So I think those were the army 
that was the army, and then the women, the children, the old, older people, I don't, there weren't many older people at this point in the life of Israel, but those non-army people, um, it was a huge group, so not everybody's going to attack and be part of the conquest. So I think they have camp, they linger back in camp and do all the camp stuff. So they are mounting an attack against this fortified city. The angel of the Lord appears to Joshua and tells them they are to march in silence around the city with the Ark of the Covenant in front one time per day for six days straight. So six day, days straight, one trip around. Silence. No, they're not, you know, screaming out war cries. No, how weird would that be if you're inside Jericho? You know, day one, what's going on here? Day two, okay, three, four, five, day six, these people keep doing this, but they're not attacking. Um, and then this is all, again, from the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord says, on the seventh day, they're to march around the walls seven times. And on the final trip, the priests blow the trumpets, the people shout, and the walls of the city will fall down. And the soldiers are to immediately, in the midst of all that chaos, storm the city and kill everyone. This is not the Sunday school story that I grew up hearing and thinking about. You know, the Rahab scarlet thread and, you know, songs about circling. This is a weird situation, and it is chaos and pandemonium when all of a sudden the walls come crashing down and, and people, are, Israelites are storming the city and slaughtering people. It's a mess. Of course, Rahab and her household are spared in honor of the promise made by the two spies. So this is a great start to conquest. I mean, this would fill you with confidence, right? You're up against a fortified city, decades of wandering, you have the word of the Lord, and then just a decisive, overwhelming victory. Are there any golfers here? This is like making a birdie on the first hole. Okay. Now you're, you're full of confidence. You are ready for the rest of the round. It usually is for, for me. Um, so, yeah. Now they're full of confidence. They are ready to move. So now it's on to Ai. The inhabitants of Ai are small in number. Okay. Ai is not a fortified city. It's located west of Jericho. Nothing intimidating about Ai or its people. So Joshua leads the people into this battle, but they're defeated. What is going on? Lord, have you left us? We conquer Jericho. Ai, they defeat us. It's mind-boggling. So the Lord informs Joshua that his instructions have not been followed. They lost the battle because they didn't follow the instructions of the Lord. That leads to the public exposure and execution of Achan and his family. I said this is not an easy book in, in this regard. Execution of Achan and his family. People died in this battle. Okay? It's not a small thing that they lost this, this battle. People died. But now Israel knows 
that it cannot win victories in her own strength. They will only succeed if they're faithful and obedient to the Lord. So Israel tries again. This time God blesses the endeavor. They defeat Ai. Um, the, the battle plan for this is, I think, pretty cool. Okay, I don't have as much time as I hoped to spend here, but this is basically the strategy that they had. This is where Israel is camped out, okay? Ai is here, up on a hill. There's a hill over here. Those are my hills. Uh, and then a valley in between. Okay, so this was the strategy. At night, Joshua sent 30,000 men this way. Okay, they're just lying in wait here. And then he sends the rest of the group up here. Okay, so now this is the main camp of Israel, other than the 30,000 soldiers there. So I don't know how many, I don't remember how many soldiers they had total, but 30,000 was a fairly small in, in percentage. Okay, so the main group is, is up here. He does send a few more people here just as a precaution in case things go bad and armies from Bethel come in to help. Okay, so the main camp is, is up here and they start moving into the valley. The people up on the hill in Ai see that and now they're filled with, with courage because they've just defeated Israel. So they're like, oh, no problem. We'll just go in here and take them out again. They didn't learn their lesson. As, as soon as they get into the valley, Israel then, this is step six, they retreat as if they're fleeing. So they, they pretend to be afraid and act like, oh, what, what were we thinking? We don't want to die. We're out of here. So the king of Ai and the men of Ai pursue them. And when they do that, as soon as they get far enough here, the signal goes out, Joshua radios to the to the 30,000 men down here and they come in and sack the city. Typical ambush, I guess. How do you, how do you radio them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it was. It was could have involved some other non-radio transmission. But they got word to them and so that's, that's it. Now the people come in, they set fire to the city, the army of Ai turns around, they see the smoke, they come back and they fall right into the Israelite trap. Okay, they come back to take care of the fire, they're just thinking what's going on. When they get back here to the city, it's been taken by Israel. Classic ambush, okay. So at that point, um, news really travels fast here and the neighboring Canaanites hear about the victories in Jericho and Ai. Again, this is not a huge area. So they know about it, but the Israelites have a real stronghold in central Canaan. They have, they've taken two cities and this is, in, this is centrally located. This is near Jerusalem, we're in that, that area. Um, so they have a real stronghold set up. The kings from some of these surrounding cities and villages get together and form an alliance against Israel. 
Okay, they're going to band together. Um, they think that's their best bet to survive. There's a group, a sneaky group, called the Hivites. They don't join the alliance. They've got a better plan. Okay, they have seen the destruction and they don't want to be victims of that. Even joining forces with these other surrounding neighbors, they're not comfortable with that. They go with the sneaky plan. They leave their big city of, of Gibeon. Okay, these are Hivites who, who have several cities in the area. The largest one we think is Gibeon between Ai and Jerusalem, some of these Gibeonites approach the Israelites pretending to be ambassadors who have traveled a long distance, okay, to form a treaty with Israel. They claim to have traveled a long time. So if you're one of these Hivites, or if Greg was one of these Hivites, he'd be scuffing up his Air Jordans, making them look old and tattered and, you know, worn out clothes, worn out shoes. So they, they pretend like, like that's what's happening. And they want, a, they want a peace treaty with Joshua. Joshua falls for this trick. He doesn't consult the Lord and he falls for the, for the trick and he agrees to the pact. He makes a treaty with them. Uh, doesn't take long for that lie to be discovered by Joshua, but he has to honor the oath. And so the, the Gibeonites are allowed to live, but they're consigned to be servants of the Israelites. This will come back to haunt them. You'll cover this in modules to come. So now, running out of time. Now this, the news of this unusual situation comes to the attention of the king of Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem has been inhabited for centuries at this point. Even Melchizedek, king of Salem, we believe that, that Salem was Jerusalem. Okay, so... And really, to this day, come to think of it, Jerusalem is always inhabited by a rotation of people. Today, it's divided into four quadrants and, and different people. It's governed by the Israelis, but Jerusalem forever, pretty much, has been this sort of multicultural city. So um, news of, of this whole situation in Canaan comes to the king of Jerusalem, who is an Amorite. His name is Adonai Zedek, and he joins with four other Amorite kings, and they go on the offensive. Rather than wait, they go on the offensive and they attack Israel. And God gives Israel another victory. This one's really cool. He casts down hail, large hailstones, which kill people. Hail large enough to kill people. Um, this is also the battle where the sun stood still for a period of time. It's a very unusual, very you know, fascinating battle. But these five Amorite kings, they're defeated, they're executed. Um, remember, they came to Israel. They brought the fight to Israel. So we're, the Israelites are not in their villages and their towns. But now that these people, these armies have been defeated, it's a relatively simple task to occupy and secure those cities. Okay, so for this, they, they gain a lot of ground, not by going from place to place and conquering, but by conquering and then just occupying. So now the area that they control in Canaan has grown even more. It's bigger and bigger. Um, they, they move south from there. They fight more battles, victory after victory, until they've con they're controlling the entire 
southern region all the way to Kadesh Barnea. You'll remember, I hope, Kadesh Barnea is a very significant city. Remember that was on the outskirts. It's where the spies originally went in. So Israel now, this is straight out of Joshua, Israel controls that whole area to Kadesh Barnea. That's big. Um, it gets more and more isolated and wilderness-y as you move um, southwest from there. So they're controlling all this area. With that part of the land conquered, Joshua turns his attention north. Uh, the people of the north, they're terrified at this point together, so they join, they join to form one army. Um, they go on the offensive as well, but it's just more victory after victory after victory. Lots of details. Go, go back and read it, but we don't have time to go, go through it. There is some repetition in this section too. More and more battles, but as God predicted beforehand, nobody stands a chance and, and ultimately Canaan belongs to Israel. So seven years of fighting come to an end and Joshua has defeated in total 31 kings, it says. Part three, distribution of the land. We're going to go quickly through this. You remember from Leviticus, the Lord had given specific and detailed instruction about land ownership and sale and, and so forth. There were lots of laws governing it. Um, but basically, the Israelites were allotted portions of the land as their inheritance. It was divided up by tribe. So each tribe had a section of land, except for what tribe? Levi. Except for Levi, right? The tribes of Reuben and Gad, along with half of the tribe of Manasseh, had asked Moses back when they were on the other side of the Jordan. They liked, these tribes liked that land on the other side of the Jordan. Spent all that time in the wilderness and then they realized, oh, we're in fertile, nice land. We don't need to cross over. We like it here. So Moses agreed to let them occupy that land and inherit that land as long as they were willing to go with the rest of the army and go over and, and participate in the conquest. Um, but then when the land was divided up here after the conquest, those tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, they settle on the east side of the Jordan. That was, by the way, technically part of the land promised to Abraham. So this is land promised to Abraham, but it does seem like they were motivated by materialistic concerns here. And that does come back to bite them as well because they don't have the security afforded by the river and they have, they have Moabites to the north, they have Midianites to the south. So um, they settle there. Okay, I think I better move on from here. The last days of Joshua. The book ends with two addresses from Joshua, one to the leaders, one to the people. He reminds them of God's purposes and blessings. It's amazing to me how much space is given in these books we've been studying to remembering. The Lord wants us to remember. He wants us to remind each other what God has done for us. But Joshua in this address urges all the people to be faithful and obedient to the Lord. He calls on them to remember their covenant obligations. This takes place in Shechem. Maybe you remember, remember Mount Gerizim, Mount Abel, the mountains of blessings and cursings. I pointed out last week in between is the city of Shechem. 
So Joshua is giving this address at Shechem and calling them to be faithful to the covenant, reminding them what God has done and probably pointing at these mountains and saying, if you're faithful, Gerizim. If you're not faithful, Abel. Okay, blessings and cursings. And he's doing this from Shechem. All right, I'm going to skip some of, that's the end of the outline. That's, that's all I have time for. I really thought that this week would be less rushed, but um, I want to cover types and shadows to some extent, okay? We have three minutes left. Joshua is a type of Christ, clearly. Joshua means Jehovah is salvation. I said last week, the Hebrew, the, the name Joshua is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek name from which we get the name Jesus. Does that make sense? So Jesus is not the Greek name either. Jesus is what we know. So Joshua, the name Joshua is really the same as is to, to us as Jesus. Neither one are the Greek, just Joshua is the Hebrew version of it. It's basic, I think it's saying its translation is a bit of an oversimplification, but maybe for our purposes, you can largely think of this as a translation issue. Joshua, Jesus, okay? So Joshua is a type of Christ. In his role, in Joshua's role as captain over the people of God, he leads them safely into the promised land. Joshua is a type of the one from Hebrews who is captain of our salvation, who brings many sons to glory. So that's, he's clearly a type of Jesus. Crossing the Jordan is a type of the believers dying with Christ. The scarlet cord used by Rahab may be an allusion to the blood of Jesus. So there's this type of thing. With the last minute, though, I want to talk about Canaan itself being a type. Canaan has, has been regarded as a type of heaven to which the church is journeying through the wilderness. Okay? I see problems with that, though, because there is a lot of war and fighting in Canaan. Seven years of war, suffering, death. Heaven will be in a place of eternal rest and peace. So I think, in a sense, it's legitimate to view Canaan as the end of trials in the wilderness. I mean, it is, of course. But I think it's better to see entry into Canaan as entering into Christ. So I'll leave you with that thought. Entering Canaan is entering into a life with Christ. It's conversion. It's being born again. So the battles that occur here in this book can be seen as typical spiritual battles that we face as followers of Jesus. It's the Christian life. The conquest of Canaan should be seen as victory over spiritual enemies. There's partial subjugation of the Canaanites, but not complete subjugation. So think about the treaty made with the Gibeonites. Do we not have besetting sins which remain unconquered? So I think there's a lot of typology here. I think that's the main way to look at Canaan. So in summary, this, the book of Joshua, this conquest is our life. Being a child of God is not easy. There are battles to fight. We're not, as 21st century Christians, presented with an easy faith with where weak commitment will get the job done. We need to be fully committed, and it's a life of difficulty. But the Christian life is victorious. Warfare against 
the world is fierce, but God is with us and we're victorious. Thank you for listening to Truth and Life. If you enjoyed the series, please subscribe. And remember, from Genesis to Revelation, every book is truth to live by.